Secretary goes cap in hand to the Chancellor. We ask where any extra money should be spent. NATO troops gone from Afghanistan within four years, a prediction from the country's president. We were like 12-year-olds taking over the responsibility of a 30-year-old. But we grew in the process. And a new high-tech weapon for winning wars, the 3D printer. The Defence Secretary has called for an increase in defence funding ahead of next month's budget. Sir Michael Fallon went public with his call for extra resources for the first time. He told reporters at the Conservative Party conference that he thought funding should increase beyond the NATO target of 2% of GDP and will call for extra resources from the Chancellor, Philip Hammond. Well, later inside the conference hall in Manchester, he told delegates how existing defence funds will benefit the Royal Navy. Now, I want to see more of our ships out there patrolling the seven seas. So today, conference, I'm announcing 800 million of support contracts that will produce faster turnaround and improve the availability of our world-class warships. Well, I'm joined by Pete Sanderman, who is director of the online campaign Save the Royal Navy, as well as our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Pete Sanderman, what's your understanding of this one billion pound package for the Royal Navy? Well, it's certainly a sensible way to manage support for the warships, um, bringing streamlining contracts effectively, giving them it's the usual suspects, BEA Systems and Babcock, um, who service our warships anyway. This, this kind of work would have had to be done anyway, so it's not really new money, it's just announcements of ongoing contracts. Um, it looks like a sensible way forward, it looks efficient, but it's nothing to get too excited about. Nothing to get too excited about. What state do you say the Royal Navy is in? Well, it's it's a kind of complex picture. On one hand, it's doing great things on a daily basis. We've seen in the Caribbean, you know, they're doing great relief work. There are ships active all around the world. On the other hand, the Navy's in, in a poor state, particularly going forward. Effectively, the number of ships is falling, although we're getting newer, more modern vessels in the pipeline. We've got manpower problems. We've, we've got a hollowing out of uh, support, things like ammunition, etc. So there, there are... There are, there are serious structural problems, although the Navy is not incapable. It's, it's, it's still an effective Navy, in the, possibly in the top five to ten in the world, but there are definitely underlying problems. Christopher Lee, uh, the Defence Secretary says he's going to be asking for more money, but there have already been hints of cuts as part of what's being called a mean defence review. Well, part of what he's saying is that we want an increase in defence spending, and he is doing saying that because he's asking for an increase to head off a decrease. And that's a straightforward take. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to have been around the MOD in June 1981, where the same sort of debate happened here, except for one thing, and that was the changing of the, if you like, of the profile of the Navy. There is an argument for saying, good, we are replacing what we've got with better ships. There is an argument to say that you've you don't do that. It's not enough just to be mm. replacing things. But the important thing is that if you think about it, the Navy is more or less the same shape. You can't change the shape like you have defence policy or foreign policy decided by the Foreign Office and the government. So you then say to the military, all three services, now I want you to be able to guarantee that foreign policy. Now that foreign policy might change in two years for something that happens. Whereas the equipment that you've got might be there for 30 years. And you've got to adjust all the time. And this is why you've got to never... Ha you very rarely have the right balance 
that seems to make sense with well situations and bilateral situations as far as the, the force is concerned. And I think we've got that with the Navy at the moment. At the moment. Pete Sanderman, yeah. do you see that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it takes 10 years at least to build a warship. What you need, most importantly, is, is flexibility and resilience. That's what we totally lack. Without numbers of hulls, doesn't matter how good a ship is, can't be in two places at once. You need you need depth, you need flexibility, you need options. You may not have the. So, what are, you, what are you talking about when you say you need flexibility and options? What what more does the Royal Navy need? Fundamentally, it needs more hulls. That that's probably the most important thing. But before we even get to that point, the Navy needs to resolve its manpower problem. That's the kind of foundational block that needs to be in the short term certainly needs to be addressed. So even if the even if the Navy was given a huge new tranche of funding tomorrow. It couldn't start doing very much until it had resolved its manpower problem. Um, it, needs, it needs to get a grip on that before it can do anything. Then, then it would need to start looking at how can we get more holes. There are, for example, there are ships that are, you know, planned to go out of service, like the the Batch One River Class OPVs. The four of them that are relatively modern ships, which we're getting rid of and replacing with with Batch Two ships, which are marginally better but not a big change. We could keep hold of those Batch Ones if we could find two, three hundred people to man them. Um, it's a similar story with HMS Ocean. She's she's doing great work at the moment, but she's going to be decommissioned next March. We could hold Off on to the Brazilians. Almost certainly being... I, the, the, the news on the grapevine is that she's already been sold to the Brazilians or it's been pencilled in, but we could hold on to her, put her in reserve until we've got the manpower. Obviously, mm. at, the, at the moment, we have to decommission her to get the people off her to go to man the Prince of Wales. We don't have enough manpower to keep all three of those ships, the carriers and, and ocean going. Can but, I just say, Pete, just one thing here. Uh, two weeks ago, I was told that it's unlikely that the Royal Navy, in, and the Army's in a similar position, the Royal Navy uh, will have manning up to a level that it can keep 19 vessels, and these are not uh, sort of offshore patrol vessels. These are, if you like, sort of frigates and upwards, uh, for about five to ten years. It yeah. won't have the manning. So when you send, let's say, the Queen Elizabeth to head a battle group, and with all the surface and subsurface vessels you have to send with it, and also the rotary aircraft that go with it as well, as well as the uh, as well as the fixed wing, uh, you'll not have the manpower to actually put them to sea and keep them to sea. The other part of it is when he says, for example, we're going to keep ships at sea for a long time. Yeah. Well, a you're in trouble because yeah. the other thing is he's the guys. The, on, he's talking about the maintenance alone there, isn't he? Really, yeah, I suppose. But the other part of it. What about all the guys in those ships that actually ought to be ashore doing shore training Absolutely. and so, they're not doing it? OK, we've got, we got the budget published on the 22nd of November. Pete Sanderman, what in that could resolve the issues we've just been talking about? OK, well, first of all, money could help with the manpower situation. You, we could... We could, we could break the, the pay cap, for example. It's been basically going on since for 10 years nearly. I think we've had a 1% pay cap across the whole public sector. So that could be broken. We could have more bonuses, retention payments, and so on. Incentives, basically, for people to, to most importantly, the experienced people to stay in and not leave in their droves, particularly engineering and technically qualified staff who we're, we're desperately short of. Um, and to, we may need to look at expanding HMS Rally, which is the new entry uh, training uh, establishment. Um, the, so the, the man, manpower will be the first thing that could be addressed with money. That would help. Um, like I've mentioned before, there are ships that are due out of service that we could perhaps hang on to, even if they had to go temporarily into reserve. That mm. would be the first kind of thing. The in, the in the longer term, we need a bit more clarity about the Type 31 uh, project, for example. Now, there's, the, the government's talking about five ships. 
possibly more. Could it, if it committed to a, a, a bigger number of Type 31s, that would drive down the cost. That would be helpful. We could plan for a bigger fleet down the line. Mm. This isn't going to happen overnight, obviously, but that would be a, a sensible okay. first step. And there isn't the dockyard space actually to build more than about half a dozen. Mm. Well, we'll leave well, it there for a moment, gentlemen. Pete Sanderman, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. Of course, um, we did ask for a defence minister to come on the programme and talk to us. No one was available. But responding directly to the comments made by Pete Sanderman on the Save the Royal Navy website, an MOD spokesman said... We are growing the Royal Navy for the first time since the Second World War. Our Navy can already carry out all its operational requirements and with two types of brand new frigates and two huge aircraft carriers in the pipeline, the UK is fulfilling its global maritime role. Well, the Deputy Commander of Operations at the RAF has been speaking this week about future-proofing. Air Marshal Stuart Ather says there are difficult decisions being made within the Royal Air Force. Whilst we're delivering current operations, we need to be growing for future operations. And of course, there's a balance to be struck between the two. That's one of the challenges we face, because too much focus in one area could result in you know, losing out in the other area. At the moment, it's a fine judgment, but I think we've got the balance about right. Well, joining me now is Ben Moores, a defence and aviation analyst from IHS Jane's. Hello, Ben. Uh, how much of a problem is there with UK defence spending? Well, it does seem to have a problem speaking to Ben Moores. Ben, can you hear me? Well, Christopher, um, if you were to put a figure on it, how short do you think the defence budget is to fulfil the 2015 defence review? The defence budget, at the mo- if you can hold the defence budget at the moment, you, you're you're doing quite well. Uh, but you then have to start thinking how you use it, because there's something we've come across before. You know, people talk about having a two percent increase in defence spending as part of the NATO uh, requirement, etc. But it's also a national requirement. But it doesn't actually matter whether the figure is two percent, three percent, one percent, or whatever. It's what you spend it on. It's what you actually use that money for. And it is longer term. You can't say, well, I've got this X number of pounds. Uh, what am I going to buy? You don't go out and buy, if you were sort of another Navy, you might. You go out and buy, a, uh, let's say, a frigate. Here, we build them. It's a longer term process. And the other thing to consider, although there are a lot of drawbacks in all three services, uh, especially uh, the Army's got a problem, is the Army's redesigning itself, but it hasn't got enough manpower to actually fulfill that buying. Uh, the uh, the realignments of it. This is the important thing. Uh, you look around what other people are doing, and you must not make comparisons. I mean, even in your so-called potential enemies, you must make comparisons because what you're doing is lasting you, say, for 25, 25 years, but you actually don't know what shape of services you actually need in that period. Mm, reports around that there are possible cuts to the Army Air Corps. Do you think there's much mileage in that? Is that uh, possibly well, true? Well, I thought that was already go- always going to take place. I mean, what, the idea was changing the type of uh, a, a type of uh, uh, rotary wing aircraft that was going to be used, and that means probably removing one squadron. Mm. But that actually, again, doesn't matter. It depends on what you, you, you're asking your squadrons to do. The other thing with the Navy, um, it, it, it's a heartbreaker thing because every admiral gets out and six, says we've, we haven't got enough ships left and we haven't got enough manpower to drive those ships, etc., and you can hear that for the past 30 years. It's something that simply happens. What is, and it's wrong in some ways to say, yeah, but actually it's, it's a much better Navy than anybody else in Europe's got. 
for example, that doesn't actually matter because it's there to support your defence policy and defence policy is not there to justify your defence material spending. What do you think is behind, I mean obviously we have the budget coming up, but what do you think is behind what the Defence Secretary said this week, we must do better when talking about the 2% spending on defence? Well, lots of things. I mean, one, you've always got the thing in the back of your mind, you want to remind the Americans that you're actually doing quite well and therefore not to badmouth you and they don't badmouth us, they badmouth everybody else. So you you, you, you've got that thing. But there is a truth in it, because once you start slipping, or say you're slipping, uh, it means that you haven't been putting out the red flags. You've got to put the red flags out to the government. You've got to put it out in cabinet. Somebody once said when David Owen was... Uh, 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 David Owen was... Uh, no, John Knott was a defence secretary. And he, he said, well, he said, the purpose of, first purpose of a defence secretary is to be good in cabinet. And that's... You know, that really is the case. You've got to go and fight your corner mm. uh, because everything you do, for example, if you're in the health service or agriculture or, or foreign aid or, or whatever it is, you can, you can go and fight your corner to get the money and in six months' time you're going to change it. When you're fighting a corner with the defence ministry, that chunk of metal you've just cut, like the defence secretary uh, earlier this week, cut the second uh, Type 26 metal in Belfast, HMS Belfast as it will be called, mm. Uh, that's going to be there for 25 years. Mm. And so the spending to keep it there is a much bigger uh, a bigger subject. So if you put up 35, 40 billion uh, pounds a year, it's it's looking after something that's going to be around for a much longer period. We can now talk to Ben Moores, a defence and aviation analyst from IHS Jane's. Good to speak to you today, Ben. Uh, how much of a problem do you think there is in UK defence spending? There's a very big problem. The... Um I mean, first, we've got to put it against the backdrop of what happened in 2009, where we saw a $10 billion drop over the four years that preceded it. And looking forwards since then, we, we're going to continue to see you know, a 2% drop every year in real terms. And that's because the country's in so much debt. Um, and this is just going to accelerate as the country runs out of money as Brexit begins to bite. Um, you know, it's, it's looking pretty brutal. The procurement bow wave that built up during the Iraq war has gone away but this is really because a lot of the programs have been moved to the right um you know in, and this is all against a, a global backdrop of relative increases so in real relative terms the decline is actually much worse well as you point out there are going to be financial problems within the uk how do you think defense should play it exactly what do you think the solution is well i think really we need to stop the pretense that we can afford everything there needs to be a, an honest statement um, that we, uh, rather than these sort of misleading statements that everything's fine and we can carry out all our operational requirements. I think there needs to be an awareness in the public that, the, you know, yes, the military is great, but it faces the real possibility of a catastrophic uh, defeat if, you know, public expectation and real capability are not brought back into line. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, and to do that, you've really got to cut capabilities and start to, you know, coordinate with other with other countries. And you say we should stop pretending we can afford everything. What should we not afford anymore? What would you cut? Um, well, that's 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 an interesting question. I think you know, I, th- I think what we need to do is 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 make a decision as a country which areas we're going to do and do well. A bit like in the Cold War, where we we did you know say you know we did anti-submarine warfare. We focused on one thing. And in in this era, we need to say right, you know, we are going to say like the Dutch cut armored forces, or maybe like you know the um, you know the um, the Spanish they've cut certain areas of their you know army capability. We have to say right, you know, let's get rid of all the attack helicopters, or like we did with Nimrod, just get rid of Nimrod, and mm-hmm. we have somebody else who does maritime patrol aircraft, 
or we get somebody else who just does all our airborne ISR. And we have a reciprocal deal where we offer the things that we have decided to focus on. So, so Ben, what would you cut? Um, personally, I would cut. Uh, I would probably cut large large elements of the army. Manpower. Uh, manpower is a huge expense. I mean, if you look at if you look at where the funding actually goes, the army takes up the bulk of the bulk of the funding, and not only that, but it, whilst it does, it takes up only half the procurement of, say, the air force, and, and there's only about two billion dollars a year. There's about eleven billion dollars a year in operations and maintenance, basically manpower. Yeah, so that would that would save you a lot if you just simply cut the army significantly down. Okay, we, we push that out that idea out there. We'll leave that bombshell there. Thank you, Ben. Good to speak to you today. Ben Moore's Defence and Aviation Analyst from IHS Janes. Now, the Afghan president says NATO troops will be able to withdraw from the country within four years. There are close to 14,000 foreign military personnel, including British troops in Afghanistan, training, assisting and mentoring Afghan forces. Speaking to the BBC's Justin Rowlatt, Ashraf Ghani says by 2021, Afghan troops will be in a position to take charge of defence and security themselves. We have a four-year security plan and we are racing through it. We were like 12-year-olds taking over the responsibility of a 30-year-old, but we grew in the process. But the Afghan National Army has suffered severe setbacks in the last year alone. 7,000 ANA soldiers have been killed, 12,000 have been wounded and with desertions too. President Ghani has lost 10% of his fighting force, but he says they're bouncing back. I'm extraordinarily proud of the sacrifice and the reason it's changing is because recruitment is up. Is it difficult? Yes, but it's no longer impossible. In 2014, when I became president, it looked like an impossible task. Now it looks like a difficult task and difficult is within our grasp. Well, Justin Rowlatt, who carried out that interview, has been speaking to Chris Whitehead. He asked him why the Afghan president is suddenly so keen to present such a positive outlook for his country. I think part of the negotiation with Donald Trump was that this would not be an indefinite, although the commitment, of course, was indefinite, this would not be, in reality, an indefinite commitment. And he wanted to seek to assure Donald Trump that, you know, the Afghans are doing everything they can to ensure that their forces are capable of taking the battle to the Taliban and, and forcing the Taliban to the negotiating table. Because let's be absolutely clear, because uh, Ashraf Khani was, that is what the agenda is. Victory in Afghanistan will be a negotiated peace. He was absolutely clear about that. And in fact, uh, that's something that Trump acknowledges, and so does uh, Mattis, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary. So that's what we're working towards. And I think this is part of his effort to kind of assure the world that Afghanistan is, if you like, putting its shoulder to the wheel and really making an effort to, uh, to change facts on the ground in Afghanistan. You talk about Donald Trump. He, of course, has said quite recently that his troops will stay as, for as long as it takes. But that negotiate, I mean, there was, there was a long negotiation. Donald Trump was, you know, I think it's generous to say was equivocal about whether that was a sensible thing to do. He's publicly said he thought that the Afghanistan was a lost cause uh, prior to uh, being elected president. Um, and so there was a lot of concern in military circles that it was quite possible that he'd pull out. The, the announcement of the commitment to Afghanistan was delayed for 
for week after week we waited for the announcement to come. I'm really genuinely uncertain, and that goes for people within the American and the British military as well, genuinely uncertain about whether the commitment would come. He's made an indefinite commitment. That's a strategic uh, decision in the sense that uh, there was a lot of criticism of Obama, who obviously had a huge surge in Afghanistan, but gave a deadline for when he was going to withdraw. And the feeling was that the Taliban just kind of sat back and went, right, well, we'll wait till you withdraw, and then we'll take on the, then the real battle begins, the battle for Afghanistan with the ANA, the Afghan National Army. Um, so he said an indefinite commitment, but the understanding is, you know, quietly, unofficially, that obviously Afghanistan is trying to ready itself, make itself able to take the Taliban on itself. It has been a, a tough year, despite what he may want us to think uh, for, for Ashraf Ghani, uh, particularly the number of desertions from the Afghan National Army. He rather played all that down, didn't he, in, in the interview? Well, I, look, the figures from last year are really dire, and I put those very directly to him. I said 7,000, it's around 7,000 uh, ANA soldiers were killed, 12,000 were seriously injured, and then there were thousands of desertions. I mean, if you add that up, we're looking at about 10% of the entire fighting force. And as I said to Mr. Carney, you know, no army can lose 10% of its fighting force uh, year on year and still expect to be able to wage a successful war. So I said, have you turned the corner? And he said, yes, we have. You know, he was absolutely adamant they have turned the corner. And I think one of the really interesting things in the interview is um, we talked about, he, you know, the, the level of Taliban support. Now, he's very consistently said he doesn't believe that there's wide support within Afghanistan for the Taliban, um, which sounds odd when you look at the sort of military success of the Taliban on the ground. Taliban controls about 11% of the country, contests another third. So it's a very powerful force in Afghanistan. Now, he says there's a misunderstanding in the West about the nature of the war. He says this should not be rightly seen as a civil war. You know, he says this is a drug war. He says the parallel, the correct parallel would be Colombia in South America or Mexico in Central America, countries that faced insurgencies funded by the profits from drugs. He describes the Taliban as the biggest heroin dealer in the world and says that those profits are what sustain the war in Helmand, not the support of local people. He says without the profits from heroin, the war would not last a single day. You know, in the interview, it's quite clear that he's kind of saying, listen, you should see this for what it is and understand that the way to tackle this is to choke off those resources to the Taliban. And if that can be achieved, then he, he thinks, I think, that military uh, success for the ANA, for the Afghan National Army, will be much e easier to achieve as well. The BBC's Justin Rowlett. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, could 3D printing be the next big thing in winning wars? BFBS Sit rep. Could a growing cadet force be the answer to the force's recruitment programme? The Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, has approved 31 new cadet units in state schools this week. Here are some cadets from Albion Academy in Manchester. Personally, before I joined the cadets, I was, do you know when you come in year seven and you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be naughty? I was one of them kids, but when I joined in year, in, in year eight, I, every, even my teacher was like, wow, Rakaya, you have changed. We get to fly, um, shoot and the work experience and we also get opportunities in the future to like have it on our CV and like it's it helps you get employed. You've got like a team where you know you can talk to, we're all very close and we all we all pick each other up and it feels like you're actually you've got people to talk to. 
Well, the government wants to increase the number of cadet units in state schools to 500 by 2020. Christopher Lee, your thoughts. Is it a sensible way to tackle the recruitment crisis? It's not going to fix the manning crisis. You know, it's not going to provide you with a load of people to go into 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 an aircraft carrier or whatever. It used to be a ready source of uh, manpower. But what's happened, uh, this was before four more further education than we have now. At one time, people leave school at, say, 15, whatever. They didn't, they went to a poly. They didn't get, perhaps go and do a, a degree, whatever it's in, as, as they can now. So um, you are off to your, say, let's further education. Then you go and do a career. And that sort of gap, you've had too much of a gap here and you've lost the, lost the cadets uh, thing. And that's one of the problems that they're going to have. So you used to be able to do it, but now because of better education, further education anyway for more people, uh, the, there is a gap where people forget. So it sounds like a sensible idea. It sounds like a sensible idea, but they actually don't go to the services. Whereas from school, when they were leaving at school at 15, they would go to the services. Is that what it's all about, though? Uh, it, no, it's not all about that. I think it's partly uh, about trying to get a, uh, a ready source, but people understanding. What you have to do is sell the CV, sell the cadet corps that you can get on your CV. That was a big thing. And also get this idea that you're different people and what you, and, and you really are. I mean, you've done different things that other kids haven't done. If you sell that, then it's going to make it far more attractive. Therefore, people are far more likely to go into the services. Now, what happens if your radio switch or challenger door handle breaks on the front line? Small parts like knobs and levers may appear trivial, but in a conflict situation, they can render equipment completely useless and getting new parts out of a war, out to a war zone can take months. First Maintenance Battalion of the United States Marine Corps, based in California, have been experimenting with the use of 3D printing to create parts like this in minutes. The technology is not new but the Marines have been working on a way of making it transportable so it could be moved on the back of a truck to anywhere in the world. Hannah King stepped inside a shipping container in California to find out more. Just like you've ever used a printer before, this is a print preview. After a few keyboard taps and mouse clicks, Staff Sergeant Wesley Jones takes three paces to his left and presses a button on what looks like a floor-to-ceiling microwave. It comes out in spool, it takes it through the machine and essentially squirts it out um, a hot glue gun, a hot glue gun, and that's where it moves around and creates layer by layer. Today we're printing the switch for a set of night vision goggles. It's not a part that's replaceable, so when it goes it usually means $10,000 for a new set of goggles, and if you're on the front line that could take weeks to reach you. We're going to print one in 14 minutes for around 30 cents. Whilst the part prints, outside, Gunnery Sergeant Travis Arndt shows me some of the other parts they've printed. We started off with some simple projects like case handles for you know different equipment cases. This is our original. It breaks, we were able to print one and then test it. It actually is stronger than the original. We put Marines inside the containers and carried them around and broke some of the original handles and then tested it with the printed ones and made them work. The table is strewn with bits and pieces, from cooling fans for tanks to the honeycomb structure of optics covers and even what looks like a 3D map. We call these pack loadable terrain models. If I have an area where I, I know I'm going to be operating out of, I can go on the, the Google Maps, get a terrain and then print it within the 3D printer. I can take this now, I have a 3D layout of the entire area, I can see what buildings are there, I can take this, slide it in my pack, take it with me pull it back out if I need to reference something and show or show someone somewhere and then put it back in my pack and keep going. 
So now it's done. Uh, I'll let you remove it. Inside the khaki ISO container, our switch is finished. You can touch it. It's still a little hot because it comes out at 167 degrees. We'll let it cool down for about a minute or so. We're embracing a technology that has not been embraced before. Being able to quickly create products and in the same day apply them is just, it's mind blowing too in comparison to how we've done business. In the past we've fought wars and, and battles in places and had to take hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars of equipment across oceans and across countries and then get those parts back in the end. Where now I just, I can take the plastic, print what I need in place and only what I need. There's still further testing to do. Their next challenge is to take their ISO container to sea to find out how motion and salt might affect the process. But members of the battalion are already deployed in several theatres across the world using their 3D printing techniques on the front line for real. That was Hannah King reporting from Camp Pendleton in California. Uh, Christopher, are we really seeing the future here or is 3D printing just a smart way of saving some money? No, it's here. The whole thing is here. You know, we live in a society now for 13 years we can put a satellite Cassini into and out of Saturn. So you're underwhelmed, are you, by this? I'm, no, I'm not underwhelmed. I'm just sort of, OK, we can, make a, uh, we can make a personal weapon using 3D uh, printing. What you have to do, though, you have to have that ability to do it up operationally with the unit at brigade level before you can do it. If you can put a satellite into Saturn, it's a doddle, ain't it? Mm -hmm. Absolute doddle. On that note, we'll, we'll leave you for today. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. So from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.